listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. It's Adrian Boucher from the Toronto Sun in for a honeymooning Alan Carter. We're not sure. Is he still honeymooning? Um, I feel lot, like he is. Yes, yeah. and and we uh, congratulate him on his recent nuptials. Very happy for Alan, but he will be back soon to uh, take over the microphone yet again and all your calls. Well, we have a very busy uh, news morning. Uh, lots going on internationally, locally. Uh, but one thing that has been capturing a lot of headlines is the ongoing uh clashes between uh, those who are pro-democracy and want freedom, those in Hong Kong who are continually fighting the Chinese government and their uh, communist regime who wants the rest of the world to, quote, stop meddling in the affairs of Hong Kong. Here's Global News' Jeff Semple. Well, I'm here just outside of central government headquarters in Hong Kong. It's a gray concrete building that is now covered in spray-painted messages from yesterday's pro-democracy protest, including one that reads, Liberate Hong Kong, a reference to what protesters say is Beijing tightening its grip on this semi-autonomous city. Just when it seemed like that pro-democracy movement was running out of steam, yesterday organizers say 1.7 million people took part in a massive rally and march through the streets of Hong Kong with more demonstrations already planned for this week. Jeff Semple, Global News, Hong Kong. So one of the things that we certainly know is that uh, the Chinese government, very powerful all around the world, they are... Uh, even those those demonstrations that are happening in North America and Toronto, for example, those that are the pro-Chinese government have come out to uh, be somewhat aggressive with those that are, are looking for their freedom and looking for their democracy and looking for uh, a little bit uh, less of a, a stranglehold from the, the communist government. I mean, this is a country um, in, in Hong Kong. It's seven million people. Uh, and it's been host to over 10 weeks of the last last 10 weeks of the massive protests or turnouts that represent a sizable uh, percentage of their population. Just this past weekend alone, um, nearly one and a half million people hit the streets to make their demands. And what they're looking for, just to sort of clarify what it is that they're looking for, it, it would appear that the, the demands are somewhat twofold. Um, what was first sent and sort of sort of projected uh, what sent them to the streets was a proposed extradition bill that could see those from Hong Kong sent to mainland China. And they were afraid that that would happen and what that could possibly mean, imprisonment for those that are political dissidents, um, those that uh, were opposed to this. They said no. Uh, ultimately, the that bill in particular was put on pause Yet it hasn't been abolished. So that's one of the things that they are uh, demanding. The next thing is, and this sort of came up um, when they, when they sort of thought the, after the first issue arose about the extradition and those that uh, would be sent to prison, there seems to there's obviously a lot of distrust that has been struck between the people of Hong Kong and the governments in, in mainland China. So the second request, because they feel that they can't trust their uh, current politicians, was the ability for those those Hong Kongers to elect their own leadership. What happens right now? Well, currently, their chief politician is sort of would be perceived as a rubber stamp um, by the, of the Communist Party in Beijing. Um, it doesn't sound 
too unreasonable to allow, a, you know, m- millions of citizens to actually elect their own government and enjoy a high a standard of living, um, which those that remember uh, resemble some semblance of a democratic country. Um, you know, all around the world, we've been watching what's been going on and just China amasses troops along their borders with Hong Kong. Um, there are legitimate fears that way we may witness what happened in Tiananmen Square a couple of decades ago. It is not unreasonable to actually have our minds go down that road and, and that could be a potential. But nonetheless, as this has all been going on, as you've been hearing about it here on the radio and, and seeing it on, on television or in your news feeds, the clashes between um, the pro-Chinese government and the individual and the Hong Kongers, it's escalating. It's its really, really taken an un- ugly turn. Um, we've seen it now where uh, foreign leaders from all different countries have been weighing in. We would I would suggest that Canada has not done enough or said enough to support those Hong Kongers that are pro-democracy and looking for uh, those rights and freedoms, which so many um, around the world already enjoy. But you have to wonder why. We know that the Hong Kong government is very powerful. We know that the the multi-billions of dollars of Chinese interests all around uh, Canada and the United States, for example, uh, is very prevalent. Canada is already in some uh, in fights with other countries around the world, like Saudi Arabia. They are threatening taking away funding and our, our international students. It's a significant component to uh, Canada's economy for our post-secondary institutions. It is, are those international students from countries like China? Uh, our trade, our canola, our grain, these have all been threatened. We don't have um, really sound uh, trade relations right now with a country like China because of Canada sort of offering not t- tacit support to those that are the protesters, uh, to the Hong Kongers, but at the very least saying that, um, you know, these things need to unfold as they are and everybody needs to be given a voice. I would suggest that Canada could do more and should say more. But Hong Kong is our China, um, mainland China, the government of China is is sort of lashing out Uh, at Taiwan, for example. Taiwan has offered those um, that are the pro-democracy protesters. Taiwan has offered them asylum. And for those Hong Kong protesters that spoke up and believe that what they say is important for um, for pro-democracy, China doesn't like that. China really... As, it, as, it, as it's been described to me, it's pretty much since they come out of the womb, they are given this propaganda by the Chinese government. Um, and the, it's very pro, uh, pro, pro-communist, even though the irony, of course, is they're not a particularly communist government in the in the textbook sense. They are very much a free market and um, uh, have opened up certain aspects of their economy to for, for to the, the capitalist system. But just as the rule, um, as the manner by which they govern it certainly is a communist principle. Um, you may recall Justin Trudeau once said that he admired China's basic dictatorship. That was many years ago. Um, maybe we'll find that audio at some point. I'm, but nonetheless, um, so so China is lashing out at any of the countries that have decided that they are going to give any respite, refuge, asylum to the, the protesters, Taiwan being the latest. So you do have to wonder, you know, if Canada is sort of walking on, you know, Treading lightly, so to speak, because they don't want to upset the uh, the, the Chinese government, um, because we do have so many uh, so many billions of dollars on the line when it comes to trade and negotiation with uh, the, the government in, in China. And we don't want to upset those. But 
do we not upset some of that stuff in order to do the right thing? I would argue that it is the right thing, and, and we should be and we should be lending a stronger uh, voice of support to those in Hong Kong. Um, and and you know the interesting thing is they are uh, we sort of look on this side of the pond all the time and you know try to project our values and our principles on what's going on over there, but. Canada has a very large um, Chinese diaspora and and many, many thousands from, from Hong Kong. And you hear it in the conversations they're having amongst each other. Uh, those that are from Hong Kong, then those are from mainland China. You know, these perhaps friendships have been have been broken. These are these are things that happened in my parents' home country in India many, many, many years ago between Sikhs and, and Hindus. But this is what's happening in in China right now. Often what we hear, of course, is that protesters will be rounded up and then summarily unheard of from for for the rest of who knows. We hope that that's not the case in this instance. The world really is watching this time around. Um, I think it would be very, very difficult for the main for the government of China to just suddenly in turn, you know, thousands upon thousands of protesters and for them to never be heard from again. Because if anything that the Chinese government wants to always maintain is a um, it's their reputation, even though they've been heavily criticized for their human rights violations, even though they've been heavily criticized for their strong arm tactics, even though that they've been um, taken to task for really offering no semblance of democracy in their country. They are still unbelievably powerful and extraordinarily um, influential around the world. So is that one of the reasons why? No one really wants to stand up to them and no one will really stand up to them, except for, ironically, President Donald Trump. And, you know, you may roll your eyes collectively at that, but he has been the only world leader that has actually said that they have potentially been, you know, influencing uh, currency manipulation. He wants to stand up for America first over China and he wants fairer deals from China and they haven't been uh, been playing fair and been playing nice. So Trump has been really the only one that has uh, stood up and, and, and spoken up. This is Adrian Badger from the Toronto Sun in for Alan Carter. So in what is going to perhaps be one of the most bizarre, contentious, odd, unusual, pick your pick your term, uh, federal election that's coming up in October. One other layer to this um, is the leader of the People's Party of Canada. That, of course, is Maxime Bernier, former conservative. He ran for leader, lost against Andrew Scheer. Well, over the course of the last few months, maybe even year, I would say, and um, Maxime Bernier has been doing whatever he can to certainly draw attention to issues that he believed that Canadians should be paying attention to. Some could be dubbed as somewhat protectionist. Some would call them even racist. Some would call them climate denying. Well, that's what brings me to this story uh, right now. So um, Elections Canada is warning environmental groups that calling climate change real could be considered partisan. So to help us unpack this, and there is a Maxime Bernier component to this, I'm joined by Jamie Ellerton. He's a regular here with us at Global News Radio 640 Toronto. He's a, a principal at Canaptis PR. Recently, uh, a newlywed as well. Uh, Jamie, congratulations. Welcome <laughs> thank back. You, <laughs> thank you, for uh, Thank you for joining us. So my preamble to this was, yet again, another thing that Maxime Bernier is trying to draw attention to, trying to get garner some support, um, where I think he sees a first 
fringe group of Canadians that support certain aspects of his um, party platform. Uh, maybe that's unfair. Maybe it's not fringe. Maybe it's a lot more mainstream than we, we perhaps uh, uh, recognize. But what is this latest notion of him going to Elections Canada and the, the partisan advertising when it comes to uh, environmental issues? So I think this is a really big concern for Canadians, and I think it draws attention to the concerns that a lot of people who speak about free speech and the increasing restrictions on Canadians' ability to participate in the election had warned about. At the end of the day, when we hear this directive has been given, a bureaucrat in Ottawa has decided that it is partisan to talk about climate change. Now, let's take climate change out of this and sub in any other issue. The Communist Party on Twitter was joking that they're actually opposed to market-based economics, and therefore it should be partisan to talk about anything to do with the economy as we otherwise know it. And it sounds absurd, but that's essentially the position that Elections Canada is taking. So when you have people who claim to be doing good and want government to solve all our problems, as we're also kind of hearing similar sorts of things as to what the Trudeau government wants to do as it comes to policing online content and social media, there are always unintended consequences to these things. And quite frankly, it's absolutely absurd. So I understand the the need. You know what's interesting about this? So whenever we go ahead and say uh, in public opinion polling, what's the most important issue for Canadians? The environment and healthcare usually top the list, although those are those are issues that they're concerned about. These are cons- uh, these are challenges that our country is clearly facing with funding and you know looking for new technologies in order to um, mitigate our carbon footprint. And and you know we sign on to these international treaties that doesn't don't necessarily mean a whole heck of a lot. Like you and I both know that the Paris Accord that uh, that Canada signed on to, we're never going to meet those targets because no one really can measure what um, no one really can ex- articulate what they are. I think what Canadians sort of expect is. We will do our part. I will recycle. I will reuse. I will um, turn off the lights. You know, those sort of simple, practical things that we can just do on a regular basis. So we know that these are issues. But when it comes to the ballot box question, I don't think it's going to be this one, Jamie. I would tend to agree on that, Adrian. I think if you look at kind of the issues that Canadians care about, yes, I think Canadians overwhelmingly care about climate change. Is it the number one decider of how they cast their ballot? I'm not so sure. And I think if we look at even how we just frame this in the context of Elections Canada deeming talk about this as partisan and therefore it triggers a whole ton of regulatory compliance uh, requirements on any organizations wanting to talk about this issue over the next campaign, that's not only costly, it's also cumbersome. Uh, a lot of organizations aren't actually sure what the letter of the law means and what that entails for their organization. And that means they're not going to be engaged in issues on this campaign. And again, it doesn't matter what side of the debate you're on. The fact is, with our rules, you're not allowed to have this debate unless you officially get approval from a government bureaucrat and sign up to do so. So I think if you look at where these kinds of issues going forward, uh, Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives have been very clear that they don't think a carbon tax is an environmental policy. It's a tax policy, and it's designed to take more money out of your pocket and raise the cost of everything so that Ottawa can spend it on what it chooses. And these sorts of things are why we have elections, and the harder it is for Canadians to take part, the less that served our democracy is. So I, I, I'm actually really kind of struggling with how Elections Canada um, would even go about this. Uh, I, I mean, 
we know that they are the regulators. We know that they are the ones that sort of monitor all the different, you know, citizens groups and third parties and other uh, organizations that get involved in a federal election or get in, involved in any um, in, in our in our federal elections for sure. How are they? How do they, you know, police this? How do they monitor this? Is there a fine if if environmental group X goes ahead and says, you know. Yeah, we we know this is always going to be anti-conservative. That we know, um, you know that this particular conservative is, you know, you know if you cl- if you're if you don't believe in man-made climate change, you're a climate denier. And, you know they use all that sort of hyper hyperbole that language. Does Elections Canada find them if that's the case? I, I'm I'm very confused. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So the way the in, in very simple terms, the way the system is set up, if you are an organization loosely defined. You can be an industry association. You can be a U.S.-style PAC that seeks to influence the election through advertising and other communications means. You could be a charity. You could be just about any group of people that are officially organized into some kind of entity that otherwise would be known as a group. You have to register with Elections Canada. The purpose of the law was to have transparency. So to know who is spending money on what and how much they're spending so that Canadians can make an informed decision when they hear. That's why you see disclaimers. Uh, after the end of ads, brought to you by, insert the name of the organization here. Of course, you see it for political parties, but you also see it for third-party groups. So these third-party groups are supposed to register with Elections Canada and say that they're essentially going to be advertising, and they have to meet a threshold. I forget what that number is here off the top of my head, but it's a relatively low threshold. If they spend more than that during the election period, they have to declare it to Elections Canada. All the expenses that say go into shooting a TV commercial or shooting a digital ad that's run during are part of the things that get disclosed. They have to disclose where the funding came from, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of that now is leaving. So anyone who wants to talk during the election is if using resources to engage in partisan activity. If you're an organization that, say, has 10,000 email supporters on your list and you come up with a creative graphic or two and you have a comm staffer, maybe spend a day and a half writing a few different things to try and energize you to inform yourself and how you're going to vote and where the parties stand on the issue, is that now partisan activity as it relates to these sorts of things? It's creating a cloud of uncertainty over all of this and it's uh, obviously impeding organizations' ability to engage in a conversation with Canadians at the time when Canadians are going to the ballot box. So we have this other aspect of the discussion happening coming into the next federal election. We have a, a liberal government that's in charge right now that is obsessed with uh, their their version of trying to root out what they call fake news and misinformation and disinformation and these, quote, bad actors that might get involved and try to manipulate our election one way or the other. Um, you know, this has been really such a big uh part of the the, the the election conversation, not only in Canada, but in, since uh, President Trump was elected um, in, in four years, nearly four years ago. So how do how, I mean, this is this is where I struggle with this is because for the average Canadian, I mean, you and I have been in the media world. We understand, you know, what it means to try to communicate or articulate a message. Uh, I'm in the newspaper industry. You know, we understand that we have to sort of hit the reader right away with the information because we have such a, a short opportunity to to cram so much information into like a pinhole. Um, you know, attention spans are less. Attention spans are not what they used to be. People are not sitting down and, and pouring over the, the platforms and, and all of that. So it is sometimes these memes and these gifts and these and these um, this this uh, that element of communication that actually resonates with people more. Um, but how does the how do and yet there's still a discussion about, you know, 
human impact on on climate change um canada's footprint uh in the in the global uh emissions what are you know our number is pretty low but yet we have a carbon tax uh how do Canadians parse through all this? I mean, I know that's a weighty question, Jamie, and I don't really expect <laughs> you to answer it. Because, but I think it more just speaks to sort of the the absurdity of of you know go, for Elections Canada to go down this road. Of course, we believe in climate change. Of course, we know that we ha- there's been a human impact. We all know these things. They all tick those boxes for us. But why entertain this? Uh, that's ultimately a question for Elections Canada. And I think if you look at one of the things that this law, uh, before it was introduced, as it was passing Parliament, got a lot of pushback. A lot of people warned about the unintended consequences of this. And of course, in our system, when bad laws get made, you see court challenges. So I would not be surprised, given how draconian and like, ham-fisted uh, Elections Canada has been in make, issuing this directive and its broader widespread implications for groups of all sizes, large and small, to be able to engage in this election. I would not be surprised if we saw some groups go forward ahead anyways, communicate with Canadians on whatever the issue is, whether that's climate or something else, over the course of this elections campaign, welcome the Elections Canada investigation, welcome Elections Canada saying they did wrong, and to challenge the draconian law in court. We've seen in the past, of course, there are reasonable limits to free speech, uh, the of course the National Citizens Coalition's case against Elections Canada 10, 15 years ago, even longer now, uh, was a prime example of that. We have, of course, have spending restrictions on what parties can do in their limits. We also have donation restrictions. Uh, corporations and nonprofits and unions can't give money to politicians. Only individuals can donate to political candidates and political parties. So there's already a lot of these restrictions. But with how draconian Elections Canada is being today with this new directive that you can't debate climate change because apparently it's partisan, I would expect that to get challenged in the court of law and uh, hopefully for the court to strike it down in the name of free speech. All right, Jamie, thank you very much for joining me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Adrian. Jamie Ellerton is a principal at Canaptis Limited. Laugh scam just won't go away for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And last week with Canada's ethics commissioner finding the prime minister in violation, he broke the ethics law. Not the first time for him to have done that. It's the second time that Justin Trudeau has done that. It brings the issue of laugh scam and Jody Wilson-Raybould and the former attorney general all back to the fore. And what we saw over the course of last week, of course, was the prime minister refusing to apologize. Dr. Jane Philpott, you may remember that name. She was also a cabinet minister who resigned on principle, felt that she could no longer serve under the Trudeau government. And um, what she felt were a number of tactics that Trudeau and his staff used to try to basically get the former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould to change her mind on whether or not SNC-Lavalin would get a deferred prosecution agreement. It's all very complicated, but here's the very uh, straightforward, simple thing. There's been calls and demands for the RCMP to do an investigation into this if there has been um, uh, anything else nefarious going on. Someone who knows a thing or two about this and can help us unpack this is Mercedes Stevenson. She is the host of the West Block on Global News. Mercedes, thank Thank you very much for joining me. 
Thanks for having me, Adrian. So over the course of the last few days, I mean, I just sort of give a brief summary of what has unfolded, but yet another layer, which you um, unfold, uh, un, uh, unearthed, shall we say, you had Jody Wilson-Raybould on your show yesterday, and she told you something that um, all of us then followed with a story, uh, and it has to do with the RCMP. So what happened? Um, did she have a conversation with the RCMP? She did. She did. And, and uh, she... You break down, of course, because we go word for word as journalists, as you know, look very carefully. Uh, she says, contact and conversations with, discussions with, plural, the RCMP. Um, we don't know much about those because she won't give the details. Um, my understanding from people close to this on uh, the security side, as, as well as people who know Ms. Wilson-Raybould well, is that uh, the police did not want her talking about anything in detail that was discussed. Uh, we don't know why that is. It's not uncommon for the police to say don't talk to the media when they talk to people about things. Uh, but it raises the question, of course, of when exactly did this happen. All we know uh, that she revealed to us is that the RCMP reached out to her, not the other way around. This was mm-hmm. the police asking her to please uh, sit down and have a chat with them and talk to them. And that it happened in the spring, which means it happened after she gave her testimony, which was at the end of February. Um, we don't know who else they may have been in contact with, although we've been trying to get to the bottom of that. Uh, Prime Minister's office told me on Friday that nobody there, including the Prime Minister, had been contacted by the RCMP. Neither had anyone representing anyone. I asked that question very specifically because sometimes there can be contact with a lawyer, but not contact with the person. Uh, And they said, no, Bill Morneau says still that he has not been contacted. Um, So... You know, there, there is still the question of what happens now that this report is public, and is there anything else in this report that was revealed uh, that changes things? And Jody Wilson-Raybould has said repeatedly she didn't think there was anything criminal. In my interview, though, it was interesting because she said, look, I, I based the comments on what I knew at the time. And we know she's also said that there were things in that report that she didn't know at the time, uh, and that she says she trusts the RCMP will act appropriately. That's the same term the RCMP uses when they talk about this. They say they're looking at all the available information and that they will take the appropriate actions. That's not a common thing for the RCMP to say. They typically just won't comment or they'll say we don't comment on an active investigation if we know there's one or that they don't comment on whether or not there is an investigation. They won't confirm or deny whether there's any kind of investigation but we know they clearly were poking around in the spring uh, or they wouldn't have been talking to her. That doesn't mean it's a criminal investigation though and that's an important distinction to make. And I think that it's it's a valid point but to, to your issue of whether or not um, the ethics commissioner's report, Mr. Dion's, uh, what he unearthed, or uh, the challenge that you know you have faced, we've all faced in the media, is that Justin Trudeau still has not re- sort of relinquished Jody Wilson-Raybould of her cabinet confidentiality. Like she, in, and and Dion met, talks about that in his report that he was not able to get sort of the fulsome of everything that he would have needed because of her still ostensibly having that gag order on her. Yet Trudeau and and Butts and and all of these other uh, people involved in this are free to pretty much say anything, yet she is sort of um, hamstrung by this. Did she discuss that at all with you? I mean, we've been all been calling for this for 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 months now to to give her that opportunity to sort of we've we called it let her speak. Did she did she talk about that at all? 
Well, no, we didn't get into that because here's the thing. She she could talk to the ethics commissioner without being constrained by that. She had her cabinet confidence waived for the ethics commissioner and for uh, testimony that she would be able to speak, but only to events surrounding um, the, sort of what what happened in terms of SNC-Lavalin, not her resignation. She's never been absolved of her ability to speak about why she resigned. Do you think she what will in her book? stuff behind that? Uh, well, the book is supposed to be about reconciliation. So we'll see if she gets into that. But the, theoretically, the, the topic of the book is is not SNC-Lavalin. It's reconciliation. Where the ethics commissioner ran into issues was the other witnesses. And that could include people like Jane Philpott, who they never waived for cabinet confidence on anything for. She's never been able to tell us why she made the decisions she did or what happened. Uh, or anything about what she knew about SNC-Lavalin. There's other key witnesses in this case uh, who were forbidden from talking about it. And it's interesting because the Prime Minister and Jerry Butts and others haven't had their cabinet confidence waived. They just started talking about it, but but they didn't get a special exception there. So there's always been the question of, if she were to say it, would they really do anything about it, given that others are speaking? And that's an open question. I think from a political perspective, she doesn't want to be seen as coming out and breaching anything because she's trying to say she disagrees with, with, with things that could potentially cross moral or ethical boundaries uh, and get fuzzy. And if she does that, now she's got a problem there. I mean, she already has a problem because she said no when she was asked about the police investigation, uh, whether she had been talked to, and she had to then come back and clarify that and say she meant no uh, when she was asked the first time before they talked to her, and then she meant no again since the report came out and since the RCMP made the statement, but that yes, in fact, they did talk to her back in the spring. So with the politics of all of this, Mercedes, and the little bit of time that we have left with you, uh, Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, in a letter, just I believe it was today, has asked for a formal investigation um, from the RCMP. Uh, We've heard over the course of the last 48 hours a lot of anonymous liberals, uh, liberals quoted anonymously, saying that if the RCMP is involved, we're, quote, sunk. Their words, not mine. So, sheer asking for this, what is the next step? What is it consequential or is this all just sort of part and parcel of what has already been going on? No, I mean, this is, he's been saying the police should investigate for some time now, and uh, the, the RCMP are not like the Ethics Commissioner, where if a political party writes to the Ethics Commissioner or a politician and asks for an investigation, they'll write back and say, we're looking into it. The police kind of say, that's nice, thanks for coming out. Uh, but they are the only ones who determine if and when to investigate. We don't know if they're doing that. We don't know if they're considering it. Uh, certainly, I know who Liberals as well are very, very worried about that. You remember the last time there was an RCMP investigation during an election campaign, uh, it cost the Liberals dearly, potentially. So that is the last thing they want, because the ethics thing is one thing. People may not fully grasp that, but police investigation is something that resonates even with people who aren't political. Uh, so that's the big question is, is there one and will there be one? If there is, it won't be because Andrew Scheer asked for it, but it's certainly something a lot of Liberals are worried about. All right. Well, we look forward to your latest reporting on this. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Mercedes Stevenson is a Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block. We certainly know that Premier Doug Ford elected on a platform to get Ontario's finances back in order, $15 billion deficits, hundreds of billions of dollars in debt. Well, he has not been afraid to take on 
controversial issues and and uh, and in that is taking on municipalities in Toronto in particular. We know that the ongoing uh, issues between Premier Ford and Mayor John Tory have are, are legendary now. It all started with cutting Toronto City Council. Well, today at the Association of Municipalities of Ontario, Premier Ford announced that his government won't implement cuts to municipalities uh, till at least for at least another year. So just let's just rewind the tape for a moment. There was a big fight in the, in Toronto with uh, Premier Ford's government that they wanted Toronto to uh, implement a number of cuts. And in part, that was a lot of provincial funding. Certain things that the provincial government funds to City of Toronto, for example, they were going to be cut, they were going to be reduced. The argument on the other side of it was, don't do this now in the middle of the budget cycle. With the City of Toronto, for example, just passed their budget. Don't do this now. We will, however, work and strive to achieve many of those reductions in the course of the next budget cycle, which makes sense. So here is Premier Ford in Ottawa today uh, talking about delaying some of those cuts. There will also be no changes to the structure of the Ontario Municipal Partnership Fund for 2020 to provide you with greater flexibility. So that's just one aspect of it. And then the Premier uh, did go on to talk about other aspects of the funding with the municipal governments and how it will work for the municipal budgets. We're providing transitional funding for your budgeting process in 2020. To help our municipal partners pursue greater fiscal sustainability and protect the future of public services. So you can continue to deliver important services people rely on every single day, including public health and childcare. So one of the things that they are in the midst of negotiating and discussing is municipalities will have to cover 30% of the cost of their public health programs. Right now, uh, the provincial government covers 100% of the public health program's cost. But in the immortal words of a former Ford, there is really only one taxpayer. So now what's going to happen is they're going to carve it up. Um, The Premier's office, however, is is quoted as saying municipalities will still see funding increases um, they are required to make next year, but it will be capped at 10%. This is all a bunch of numbers. It's very wonky. But here's the bottom line. A number of the programs that happen right now that are paid for, that are uh, provided by your municipality, is paid for 100% at the provincial level um, of government for the revenues that are collected, the taxes that are collected provincially. It's paid for and, and on that level of government. What the province is saying is that it's time for municipalities in certain aspects of this programming to start cost sharing and to start taking a percentage of their budgeting and allocating it to these social programs. And, you know, it's actually pretty smart politically because then it puts the onus upon the municipality then to make the decision as to what they deem are important programs. Yes, I know a lot of citizens, you know, you rely on... um certain aspects of the funding but i don't i can't even remember the last time there was ever some sort of value for money audit done looking at all sorts of municipal programming not even just in toronto i mean all municipalities across ontario 
what program funding is is available is it being used is it being allocated to where it's supposed to be going this is sort of the province's way of of doing that and saying to the municipalities you are going to have to comb through your budgets, which they always, by the way, say that they do on a regular basis, you are going to have to then be um, responsible for combing through your budgets, figuring out what are the priorities are, where you need to perhaps reduce funding, reallocate resources, or increase funding um, on on certain things and certain aspects uh, that are uh, important to you as a municipality, be it, uh, you know, waste and water recycling. programs, health, uh, daycare, health care, a lot of things that the your municipal government provides you, frankly, is already being provided by other levels of government. But that's, you know, a whole other show, and I better not get into that. But nonetheless, um, you know, in his typical way, Premier Ford ended um, part of his speech today to the uh, municipal leaders with the, his usual rah-rah. We're 100% committed to taking an active role to support you. So you can continue to do what you do best. Put the people first. So uh, there you have it. People first. Um, It's already getting a little bit of uh, pushback from the Association of Ontario Municipalities. Um, One of the the president, Jamie McGarvey, said if the goal is saving money, improving um, services for people, and providing those services, uh, this isn't going to work. Um, he points to the fact that uh, municipalities are now going to have to cover uh, up to, in some cases, 80% of, of costs. But let's face the reality. Uh, this Ford government inherited a massive financial hot mess. And it's so very easy for every government to say yes it's very, very difficult to say no. And Premier Ford has taken a bit of a hit. We've seen his public opinion polling numbers um, plummet. Uh, I suspect that they've probably come back a little bit. There's been um, the, the government's been a little bit quieter, a little more calm, a little more professional. A lot of, a lot of changes happening at the helm of at, at Queen's Park. And so um, big, big changes uh, are coming to a municipality near you. And if you are listening to this... It's it's not necessarily the provincial government you should be very upset about. Ask your go to your your municipal leaders. Ask them, question them what it is that they believe are are the priorities and where your hard earned tax dollars should be going. Because a lot of people would argue that there's a lot that's wasted and frittered away. Um, I think one thing though, however, is a lot of municipalities are probably happy that the Ford government is not going to chop their councils in half. Um, at least not this time around. So that's, I suppose, one uh, glimmer of hope. One thing I wanted to, you know, it's really grabbing a lot of headlines because it's happened over the course of the last 72 hours. Do you remember the Canadian British citizen who was referred to as Jihadi Jack? He was the murderous guy that went and joined ISIS because... Why not? Why not leave the comfort of your of your life and go join a terrorist group? Well, Jihadi Jack, as he was referred to, um, his name is uh, Jack Letts. He is a dual citizen, dual citizen. He's Canadian and has a, a UK passport as well. Well, the United Kingdom just recently revoked his citizenship um, and the accused ISIS fighter uh, will be uh, back in Canada. And now Canada's public safety minister, Ralph Goodell, is saying that he's not very happy about this. But perhaps we should remind 
Mr. Goodell, what the leader of his party, the Prime Minister of Canada, has said repeatedly about those that have gone um, and then are Canadians and they go and fight for ISIS. Uh, Justin Trudeau has said a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian, as if that really means anything. But he has suggested that that rhetoric applies to ISIS terrorists as well. So Canada would not strip Jihadi Jack or Jack Letts of his Canadian citizenship. So as a Canadian citizen, of course, you're afforded all the wonderful um, opportunities and programs and services that uh, all of us law-abiding citizens um, enjoy. But this, in, in this instance, pre, uh, pro, um, Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodall, I believe, is being a, somewhat disingenuous about this, going after the UK government for stripping uh, him of his citizenship and saying now it's suddenly Canada's responsibility. Well, no, Canada has already said it would be it's their responsibility, even though public opinion showing a polling shows uh, time after time after time Canadians would prefer these jihadists and these ISIS terrorists that have gone over and fought and trying to come back to have their Canadian citizenship uh, revoked. So, no, they shouldn't feign um, outrage. They shouldn't feign, um, you know, any sort of disingenuine uh, upsetness at the uh, UK government because this is a very much in keeping what they said they would do. Canada, on the other hand, is, a f- is far more soft and squishier on these sorts of issues, way behind where the public is. The, the Trudeau government um, seems far more interested in in, um, you know, allowing a, a uh, self-subscribed and, and acted jihadist to, to come back and, and be a Canadian citizen rather than strip him of, of that citizenship. But uh, the other aspect of the story that isn't necessarily being asked um, and, or answered is, will he come back and serve time? We know that um, as as part of his his uh, role with ISIS, you know, he was one of the guys that was on the videos with the uh, the, the the ominous voice and with the black hood. Will he face um, prosecution? Will he actually be in jail? What will happen to this individual? Those are all questions that we will no doubt get answers to over the course of the coming days. But when you hear Goodale and Trudeau feign outrage over the UK government's decision on this, don't buy it for a second.